on this episode of See Here, the devil's gonna catch your soul. Episode 29 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. On this podcast, we talk about films that have a musical connection. And normally, I have two other people with me. And today, I have two other people with me. The first of those two people is in Seoul, Mr. Tim Merrill. Good evening to you, Tim. How you doing? I'm in good health, thank you. Someone else who we hope is in good health is our special guest for this show because our other regular, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, is not in good health. He's calling in ill, and we've just been discussing off-air some modifications he needs to make to his diet to get into better health, but we won't talk about that on the show. So, as our very, very special guest and our resident scholar for today's film, Catch My Soul, allowed me to introduce to you Mr. Robert Hubbard from Topeka, Kansas. Good morning to you, Robert. Good morning, Morris. Tim, it's a pleasure to meet it's a pleasure to talk to you, now, <laughs> and thank you for yeah. having me on. Uh, it's absolutely our pleasure. I'll, I'll tell our pleasure. Story. I'll tell the story in a few minutes. And it's about how you happen to come onto this particular episode, but we're on it because I believe this is your first ever podcast. Uh, actually, my second. Uh, oh, okay. My second podcast. My first podcast was with uh, Mike White's. Oh, um, that's right. Yes. A few months ago, um, for the phase phase four interview. So, uh, so I'm still a newbie. <laughs> well, but wow, to be uh, to be on the the projection booth as a first podcast is a pretty impressive thing. So, um, well, we're we're honoured to have you on as your second podcast. Now, before we sort of start talking about today's film, just give us a little bit of a, a background, um, so you know the listener out there can sort of appreciate who you are and your connection to film and the like. So um, the floor is yours. Oh, okay. Well, I said thank you. I'm kind of a film enthusiast. I I wouldn't say expert. Uh, I, definitely enthusiast. I've been uh, interested in film since, my God, since I was like maybe like five or six years old. Kind of always wanted to go in to pursue it, which I did. Uh, went to school in uh, Carbondale, Illinois, uh, not that far from where I grew up. And after that, uh, was so I got my foot in the door, being in San Francisco from the early 90s. Worked as a camera assistant on some some known and not-so-known indies mm-hmm. uh, and came back to the Midwest, mid-90s, and so kind of moved over to being a script supervisor, which is what, I do, which is what I've been doing now pretty much uh, since the 90s. Worked pretty regularly with the filmmaker Kevin Kevin Wilmot, uh, who's also a professor at the University of Kansas over in Lawrence. Been, I've been on his last five films, I, I, no, last four or five, I lose count. I guess as far as like legitimate, that's sort of the legitimacy I can claim as far as the other. I've always sort of been interested in film studies. One of my instructors at Carbondale was uh, Tony Williams. I guess who's known. He may not want me to mention him, but I took a lot away from his class, and I've just always kind of kept myself open to like lear- uh, learning more. And now that uh, I write 
so I've written about film, how I met Mike White. I did an article for his uh, zine, uh, Cashiers du Cinemart, uh-huh. uh, back in the 90s, and always kind of kept a correspondence, wrote for magazines called Film Score Monthly, and then like when it went to internet blogs. Right now, I do uh, writing for the blog 366 Weird Movies. So what was the last thing that you wrote? Give us an example of a weird movie that fit that blog. Well, right now, when I'm finished, well, what should be published next week is um, a thing I did on a movie called The Atrocity Exhibition, which is based on the J.G. Ballard J.G. Ballard, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've actually been curious about watching that because after watching High Rise, Mm -hmm. I wondered if there was any more uh, Ballard adaptations. There's a few. Well, well, besides Cronenberg's Crash. And right. high rise, uh, which I guess as, as soon as we finish, as soon as we finish this podcast, I'll finish that review. But no, Atrocity Exhibition uh, was like pretty much like lo- almost like underground. So it did get a release on DVD, but now and now the DVD's out of print, so it's hard to find. If you can find it, it's very much worthwhile. It's kind of like kind of, oh, how to describe it kind of unfilled where the others like with high rise and crash uh they sort of kind of filter them it's ballard but it's sort of filtered through the filmmakers uh atrocity exhibition is pretty much unfiltered ballard and it also has the notoriety of having being the only adaptation that has a commentary track uh with ballard's participation so oh Mm. check it out so the 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 url is 366 weird movies uh, three. Uh, so URL is three sixty six weirdmovies dot com. Okay, and that's the number three six six. Yes. Okay, three six six weirdmovies dot com. Well, kind of a distant neighbor to the beast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we'll do now is um, we'll launch into the uh, the movie that uh, you are joining us for today. And I mentioned very briefly, the film is called Catch My Soul, which languished in obscurity for many, many years. And that's really a fascinating story unto itself, which we're going to start the program off with. So, okay, what we'll do quickly is we'll go and listen to the trailer and then we'll come back and talk about the origins of Catch My Soul and who's in it and all that good stuff. And then talk about the film itself. You're listening to episode 29 of See Here. We'll be back in a moment. It's music. It's an experience. It's rock. It's Catch My Soul. A total immersion. Working on a building. Working on a building. Starring Richie Havens. Catch My Soul. A unique motion picture experience. Run, take a life. Shake it out of me. Catch my soul. It's today. Drink the wine. Take his fancy. My first Catch his soul. Catch this soul. Rated PG. If you like. Westerns, comedies, foreign films, horror movies, action adventure, and classic cinema. Well, we don't have much of that, but if you like ass, titties, farting, burping, puffy nipples, poop, taboo porn, muffin tops, comic books, wrestling, mustaches, pies smashed on butts, cheese, taking baths, butt sex, gagging, milk, and the American flag, check out the Silva and Gold Podcast. We're the morons your mom warned you about. 
while she was sitting on your face. Silver and gold. We talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. Found himself a commune and said the devil has got to go. And we're back from break. Morris here, Tim there, Robert also there. And uh, Bernie, hope you're listening to this. Hope uh, we do it justice. I'll, I'll be very. Hope you feel better, Burn. Yeah, yeah. Drink, drink the tea with ginger. That's that's Tim's recommendation. So, yes. Anyway, we're here to discuss a little film coming out in 1974 called Catch My Soul, also known as Santa Fe Satan, starring Richie Havens, Tony Joe White, Lance Legault. Have I pronounced that right? Is it, is it Legault? I don't know. Legault. Susan Hoobly and Susan Tyrell, and directed by one Patrick McGowan, who, in a way, was... Yeah, well, yes, but he was destined to do this because late last year, the three of us discussed a little film called All Night Long. That's and, right. And that was modern-day retelling of the story of Othello. And this is a modern-day retelling of the story of Othello. So, you know, you already had that connection. Now, I, I think I should probably say that, in a way, we're sort of breaking the rules slightly of see here because we said that the the films that we spoke about had to have music as part of the story being a musical was not enough and really this doesn't have anything to do with music but as bernie went and said it fuck it it's our podcast we can do what we want so uh, there you go all right so just the imdb synopsis is it's, it's not great but i'll read it set in the american southwest othello is a wandering evangelist who happens onto Iago's remote commune. There he marries the lovely Desdemona, much to the chagrin of Iago, who also loves her. The conniving commune leader then manages to quietly pressure Othello until murder and tragedy ensue. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm crazy about that description, but we'll sort of go a little bit further into the story as we go along. Now, when I mentioned that I actually had acquired the Blu-ray of this film, I think, Robert, you contacted me. You saw that I put up a post in the See Here Facebook page, and you sent me a ton of reading material. So I take it you were very, very familiar with the film. You want to give us a little bit of a background, your history with this film, when you first heard about it, when you first saw about it, what you knew about it? Uh, well, my background, I think originally, I, when you guys did the All Night Long episode, I think I had put, mentioned something in the comments. Uh, regarding McGowan's connection to, with uh, with Othello, I guess my history with the film is well, I'm a big McGowan fan, mainly like through the mainly through the Prisoner, and for years I'd heard about the film. I knew that he had played like a Iago character in All Night Long and in this film, which he directed, and it just sort of it's one of those films that just sort of disappeared. I think like mid '80s, never got released to home video, and the only way that you that anyone knew it existed was the sound track album 
album, which used to pop up pretty regularly. I'm also a soundtrack collector, and for whatever reason, I just never picked up the album. I guess here in the late 90s, early 2000s, when everything started going to the internet, people, so you started to hear more about the film, like, where can I, where can I find this film? And the overall word about it was that it was a horrible film, but like, after going through like that cast, it's just like, it can't be that bad. Or at least that's what I was thinking. Uh, but nobody could get a copy. And then, like, what was it? Three years, I think three or four years or so ago, I was helping to program one of the local film festivals in Kansas City and uh, kind of making inquiries. And somebody had just, like, offhand had said that they had located a print of it in North Carolina. <laughs> and then uh, I came across the article that I sent you. Oh, who's the guy? It's, it's the same guy who ended up doing the booklet. But he went into this whole thorough history of the film and about its discovery. Mm. Like I said, uh, I think it was like la like early last year, just kind of like offhand, just kind of wondering, always had my eye on it, uh, hoping that someday they do a restoration and could be able to maybe grab a print or something for uh, to show. And that's when Vinegar Syndrome like announced that they were doing a DVD Blu-ray of it, which was like surprising because... If you read the article, the, at the time the guy wrote it, it sounded like it was going to be years before it even got before it even got to that point. Now, I think didn't that article say there was about 2013 when the film print had been found on that farm in North Carolina uh, in, in a trailer? Or, you know, there was some guy who collected collected 16 mil. I don't remember it was 35 mil or the 16 mil print, but he collected film prints. And the guy who was I think a film academic had been you know, doing the Sherlock Holmes work and he found that and then actually since he found that print which was in pretty good shape I think another couple of prints just also happened to show up mm -hmm. I think he says like 2003 is, is when he found that print and then oh, like okay. since then and then since then they found I guess there was a print in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington DC and then they found that the studio who now I guess who now has the rights to it uh, 20th Century Fox they found an intact negative of it so it's and Richie Havens I guess turned out that he had like a three-quarter inch video copy of it so right. i mean all all of a sudden it goes from being lost to like all of this to like all of these prints to all of these versions showing up so it's and i think they uh, said did they say that the blu-ray was basically collated from the best bits of all available prints both richie haven's video and two or three film prints that they discovered the blu-ray was taken from that 35 negative that they found in the fox vaults okay. um so I, I think, which is why, uh, and I guess the version that they found in the in the Fox Vault had the Santa Fe Satan title instead of instead of Catch My Soul. So, but so no, it's uh, it's all, for, I, and I'm assuming, and I guess from what I've read, it's the version that that did get theatrical release. So, so yeah, I mean, it's just surprising that it went from like being like from nobody knowing anything about it to like being on your store shelf. How the devil lust with his fat rump and potato finger tickles these two together. I think the first time I'd ever even heard the name was, I don't know, however many years ago when Bob Dylan was doing his theme time radio hour show. And in the episode where he was doing songs about murder, they played Jerry Lee Lewis's version from, I think it might have even been before the original Los Angeles play, The Run of the Plane. We should probably talk a little bit about those origins, the, the theatrical origins, but I'm not sure if it was like a specific recording from a theatrical production or just them mucking around, but had... He played as Iago, and he'd done this song, Lust in the Blood. That's the old love, sir. I do believe it. 
She loves him with of great credit I hate the Moor Yet I am sure You said it's by his wife With lust of the blood The mission of the weed Oh, that's what you call love She's going to have a feed But didn't sound very Shakespearean. It didn't sound very contemporary in 1968. It's just basically Jerry Lee Lewis doing what Jerry Lee Lewis does. It, sounded, you know, it could have been great balls of fire, but with words that reflected the story of Othello, and in particular Iago's role in the story. I just thought that was absolutely amazing. I went and did this search and thought, wow, is this on any Jerry Lee Lewis album? And I, from all I understand, it's only ever shown up like on Jerry Lee Lewis bootlegs and, and the like. But I, I don't know if it's ever been available on any official album, be it a, a soundtrack or a stage production or even an official Jerry Lee Lewis album just on a bootleg. From what I was able to collate, I guess, what was it that on that radio... There were two tracks uh, I came across on this, the radio hour, and that was in one of them was Lust, in the, Lust of the Blood yes. and Let a Soldier Drink. And yeah, the, they've only shown up, as far as I can tell, they've only shown up on bootlegs. With that theatrical production, what's well, it was like Jerry Lee Lewis and William Marshall playing Othello, who's no, who later was known as Blackula. Yes. Uh, and the chorus being the Blossoms, I guess that were the backing group that and that Darlene Love was a part of i think the there's a photograph of jerry Lee lewis in in cost in wardrobe at the piano with the uh with the blossoms behind the piano and you can see and darling love is the one on the right as far as i can tell about the show it was very popular but um most of the attention went to jerry Lee lewis and he sort of just kind of played it as himself he, mm. and it got so it got like great notices and i guess pre- apparently the only reason it didn't run longer was that i i guess he he just kind of had other things to do with those two bootleg songs there's bound to be somewhere probably a recording of the entire show is who knows who has it or if it still exists in any form possibly in his archives i would think let me the can again clink clink let me the can again clink a soldier's a man and a last but a span why then let a soldier drink let me the can again clink let me the can again clink let me the can again clink clink the show had the three-month run in los angeles initially before moving to England for three years. So the whole news of the film being a flop, you know, there were various circumstances, distribution problems, timing issues, but it seems like as a stage play, it actually, in its initial day, had, you know, it had some level of success. You know, three years in England is, you know, far from a flop. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just sort of wondering what went wrong. I, I, I know as well, though, that Jack Good couldn't leave enough alone and there was one set of songs for, as you pointed out to me, for the soundtrack of the, you know, the play run, and then he completely got a new set of songs for the movie. I, I sort of want to just divert to Tim for a second. Did you get a chance to listen to the, the soundtracks? Yeah, actually, you know, that's one thing I was going to say that I, I quite enjoyed was that uh, two people that had worked with. Uh, Eric Clapton, uh, Delaney and Bonnie were the, uh, the they did all most of the score along with uh, Tony Joe White right. and I really liked the film score but the uh, the British one was very very different I mean it was it was something that I wasn't quite expecting yes it's the devil 
I'd sort of say that the British one sounded like a stage production. What we know as you know the term rock opera. I mean, the the big rock operas of the time, you know, were Tommy and Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar and uh, and, right. and Catch My Soul. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. I sort of want to discuss a little bit about why the counterculture were doing so many shows that focused well, on religious themes. I was to bring this up that maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, like the date's specifically in my head right now, but maybe uh, Catch My Soul came at the tail end of Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, I think. Right. That it actually, they came, that this film came, you know, on the tail after, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar. Before Saturday Night Fever, I know for a fact that that soundtrack was one album that everyone had in their house. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone had that in their house. After that being so monumental, and then after Godspell as well. Then maybe people got to a point where they were like, Jesus, enough about Jesus, all right? Like, you know, <laughs> they're just, they're just, okay, you know, we've had our, we've had our fill. But I think also, too, that, you know, where all of them were on this kind of multi tiered format where, you know, you've got the album, you've got the, the stage production, and then you've got the film for, for like, for both, for all three of them, actually. The producer he over uh, overstepped his bounds by uh, you know going from changing the, the the soundtrack you know like hugely from the British production to the film. But I mean, look at the differences really in the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar compared to that to the stage production to the film or Godspell for that. Matter. I mean, they might not be that you know vastly different as Catch My Soul, but I think that they are different. Mm. I think in mm-hmm. in all cases they are different, and I think that that's. That's just because of being a different tiered, like I was saying, like a different format, you know? A lot of the songs are actually changing because, as you say, Delaney and Bonnie were the, were the band and, and Tony Joe White wrote the songs. I mean, I think there were you know, a couple of songs that crossed over from the stage production right. to the to the film. But, you know, basically they said, Tony yeah. Joe White, do what you do. The songs personally work a lot better for me in the film than they do in the, uh, in the stage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the, well, that's one of the things that's fascinating to me about the whole thing because if you – I guess from the Jerry, it went from the Jerry Lee Lewis version, uh, where he's, from what I can stand, just kind of rockabilly, kind of like a rockabilly. Song. It's sort of like, as far as I can tell, sort of set in the Shakespearean setting, but just sort of rockabilly songs. And then when it goes to the UK for the stage version, it changes entirely in terms of the songs that are written. And oh, I can't even think how to how to describe it. And then when it got to the film version, it goes it goes through another change into like this country rock. I think the songs in the film are pretty much the best versions, I guess, of that story. It didn't really start out as being a religious parable. Right. From what I could t- from what happened is that uh, Jack Good, the producer, um, well, two things. It said that uh, from between the Jerry Lee Lewis version and the UK version, you had the uh, you had the man the Manson family happened. Right. And well, that's what I was going to say too. Yeah. There's a real and Manson vibe in the whole film. 
and after that, that sort of influenced the portrayal of Iago in the yeah, yeah. in the station and Legault, to where he's much more of this kind of malevolent force in the right. background. And then, and then I guess by the time they make the film version, and Jack Good had this religious conversion. So then it's Othello, but then it's him as this itinerant preacher going going to this commune. And so, I guess to the point where I guess that led to some contention because apparently, and I don't know, we can get into this later, but apparently McGowan did a cut of the film and Jack Good apparently recut the film and added like, and added some footage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it added some foot, I guess, in McGowan's words, and sort of to the point where he wanted to take his name off the film. Now, watching it, I can't really, I can't really make any. So watching the film, you can't really tell because everything. It seems like from the start that that sort of that right. the whole religiousness of it is right. kind of like ingrained in the whole. So I can't tell if that's true. I can't really. It's seamless. I, I, I agree. I, that's that's the word that came to my mind. It is. It is very very seamless. I'd say. If there was anything, I would imagine there is like a scene towards the end, and I, I think if you've seen Othello, you know that this is a tragedy. So, you know, spoiler alert. But the, the whole re- 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 religious iconography at the end, with you know the, re- the the big cross and and what Iago does in putting you know, the body of a major character in the arms of the crucifix in in the big cross at the end maybe that was it i don't know but yeah you're right the religious thematics do tend to sort of go all the way through the film and whatever else you know positives or weaknesses i should say that are in the film one thing that you can't fault it on is how seamless the whole religious or anything else about it themes sort of tend to get involved in the final cut that uh good has claimed to have edited so one of the big differences in the in the two is that you know in the film you had Othello trying to you know kill Desdemona but in the Jerry Lee Lewis version I think it was him trying to kill Desdemona <laughs> never never mind <laughs> yeah it was kind of apropos you know they had Jerry Lewis in there I thought yeah yeah <laughs> now among this flock of drunkards am I to put our Cassio to some action all right so yeah I thought this film like well the the opening with uh, Legault as the devil, you know, telling the narration, like he's he's the main orator through the whole film, kind of you know laying out the way that it's going to go down. And I I really like the way that the film does that in the beginning. I like how they start with the devil as the narrator for the film. He's the main orator that runs through the entire film. And I think that you know with most Shakespeare productions. They always had that kind of uh, that throughway, that spine, that one character that always kind of guided the play, you know, and, and kind of you know uh, let everyone know what was to come or, or the intent or you know uh, their plan. And I and I really like that how, how it goes down. I mean, and and I really think initially you can tell with his narration, you can tell that that was all written Tony Joe White. Because it's just the way that he, Tony Joe White's kind of rhyming and the way that his he writes that swamp rock, mm. and a lot of the way that I think that the narr- like uh, uh, what's his name uh, Iago like the devil, mm. he's the way he comes across. Initially, I thought he's almost like Tony Joe White. Like Tony Joe White's playing the minister, and he's you know and he's playing uh, the straight guy, and then uh, this cultish dude comes in all sly like a snake. 
But I just thought that his kind of, uh, it's not narration per se, it's not singing, it's almost like it's, he's... It's, it's breaking the fourth wall, he's speaking, right. or rather singing to the audience. I, I was going to say that the notes that Robert had sent me that made one very good point in, in the fact you sort of get two perspectives because there's uh, one song called Catch My Soul which keeps getting right. updated throughout the song, uh, throughout the film and that's Iago's perspective. But right. we also get, if it's not quite Michael Cassio, which is who Tony Joe White plays, we're not, if we're not right. quite getting Michael Cassio's perspective, but we are getting Tony Joe White as the Greek chorus, as it were, because we hear... His... Right, well, that's what I'm trying to say, is that yep. you can hear his his writing style through the whole thing. But you get Tony Joe White actually singing those songs, as well as Tony Joe White's lyrics for Iago. Right, right. So it's, it's definitely his right. style all the way through. But you actually are getting the Tony Joe White character giving a perspective with his song Othello, you know, reprised about four or five times through the film, and Iago's character um, singing, uh, breaking the fourth wall about, you know, however often throughout the film. In, I, th- I think for All Night Long, we'd gone and watched, uh, obviously, you know, All Night Long, but we'd also watched Othello just to get a bit of a background as to how the original story had played out. And one thing I would fault in Catch My Soul is that I don't think you're ever really, at least I wasn't ever really quite sold on what Iago's motivation for his hatred of Cassio and Othello was. I mean, we get a blink in your line, miss it, where he says, you know, Michael Cassio got promoted to deacon over me. You know, Othello is this wandering preacher and he's promoted Michael Cassio into the high echelon of his church. I should have been promoted to a deacon, but he voted for country boy instead of me. I'll get him. And yet Iago has gone and said, but I'm Satan. So why would Satan be pissed off about being bypassed for this high-ranking place in Othello's church? I think it was because of the fact that Susan Hubley... And Michael Cassio, both of them, and as well as Othello, they couldn't be swayed by the devil. They were basically, you know, following a, a different path. And I think that's what he resented. And I mean, there's even a point where Michael Cassio, you know, Iago's trying to tempt him, saying, well, you can have the red wine or you can have the white wine, you know, with the two girls. Come here, Cassio. Take a lesson from the doctor. I'm going to teach you about the noble art of wine tasting. And, and Michael Cassio does get drunk, but he says to the crowd, you know, you might see me, you think I'm drunk, but look at my left hand, look at my right hand, and I'm not a part of you. I'm not a part of what you're about. You know, like, this is all bullshit, right? Come on now. And that's when uh, Iago gets one of his right-hand men to start that riot. And he gets him, and he starts with the fire, and you see Tony Joe White with that the fire on the stick in his hand trying to swipe them away, you know? But, I mean, I think that that's where it all boils down to is, Iago, it's not about the love of Desdemona, it's about the corruption of Desdemona. Mm -hmm. That everybody around him has been seduced and been corrupted. And he sees her as the ultimate version of purity. And that's like the biggest temptation. And she's being swayed by, you know, the honest, pure belief of Othello, of Richie Havens, and then um, that's it. And and that's why I keep saying, I need to catch their souls. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he's he's caught everybody else in the black bus. I mean, the black bus almost represents, you know, like his kind of collection of, you know, everyone he's corrupted, you know. And they drive it around in that black bus. 
Well, that's what it, I was going to say. It mentioned with that black bus, and I guess with the, what they call in the film the tribe of hell, which are all these, I guess, Iago's followers. It's very unclear because I think with the cutting, but I always got the impression that when the film opens, that part of what sets him against Othello is that Othello essentially comes in and kind of takes over this group that he's that Iago's trying to corrupt and that part of it is basically him trying to corrupt Othello and all of and all of the work that he's said that he's sure, accomplished sure because he's saying yeah because he's saying damn he works fast you know in just two days he had that church put up and all that and there's the one point where you know he's sitting down playing acoustic guitar and Tony Joe White gave him the guitar and uh, Richie Haven starts playing and everybody's just looking at him stunned when they're just mm-hmm. hearing him play this peaceful little song. And then that's when Iago actually says to his one of his cronies, go and get the boy. So yeah, you're, yeah, you're right about that. Actually, I think there's um, there was a great line, which I'm pretty sure I'd made a note of somewhere. I can't find it, but he says something to uh, the effect, one of his uh, tribe of hell. He says, these Puritans make dull wedding guests. Go off and get the tribe of hell to liven things up. R- right, right. And have some souls that must be saved. And have some souls that must not be saved. But for my own part, and no offense to the pastor or any man of quality, I hope to be saved. Before we sort of like uh, pursue some of the other themes in the film and the film itself, I want to talk about another man who we haven't actually mentioned yet, very, very important man in the creation of the look of the film, and that's Conrad Hall. The photography in this film is absolutely stunning, absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The, the, right from those opening shots, you know, you get the, the sunrise on the horizon. Uh, oh, yeah. The shot of the remains of the old church. Uh, The mountain in a backdrop from the Santa Fe Desert. And and they're all like yellows, reds and yellows. And then the next couple of shots are all blues, you know, with with the mountain background and the rusted car in the foreground and the top of the church with the rusted cross. Now, I I think that, you know, Conrad Hall is as responsible as anyone, you know, be it Patrick McGowan or Jack Good for whatever success there is in this film. He did an absolutely magnificent job. Now, in one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray, they're speaking to Conrad Hall's daughters, uh, sorry, daughter and son, and they say that he always used to bring films home from his work, I think it was on The Outer Limits, and said, oh, I want to show you what I've done. But he never mentioned anything. They knew nothing about this film until Etiquette Pictures were putting it together or something like that. I think that's absolutely incredible that he wouldn't think to mention because the film looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, discovering the film that discovering that he that he lensed it and that's kind of like and nobody knows about this and one of the good things about this release is that it just it does justice because it's absolutely gorgeous looking in terms of the landscape mm-hmm. i think he shot he must have shot it after he did a film called electric glide and blue which is also in the southwest yep. area so it's it, yeah arizona uh, yeah and it's and also uh there was like well several things but i know there are a couple scenes with susan terrell it's the scene well the scene within the bus with her number and also towards the end where she i guess when she confronts Iago, and she's just lit by the bus taillights, mm, so she's yes. like this red, and it's just it's just gorgeous. It's, it's, yeah, and yeah. not to Go not ahead. to mention the the scenes around the campfire itself, where, right, where you know right. you mentioned already, Tim Tony Joe White taking 
that lit stick and he's you know, in a drunken yeah. wild yeah. fit he you know starts yeah. throwing it around at, at the wedding guests and, and just yeah. the lighting and that and the lighting while Iago singing with Delaney and Bonnie's band on stage right. I mean that would not be an you know, easy circumstances to light they were in the outdoors no. And, and just to, to keep everything it's just absolutely perfect and I think there's a bit where Iago himself is taking the lantern that he's going to burn the church down and you know get Michael Cassio blamed for it and you see his shadow which you know is both you know metaphor and yeah. literal yeah. And, uh, yeah. absolutely fantastic so in, in my mind you know Conrad Hall is a real star of this film well you know what's really funny to me is you might laugh but visually um, from a visual perspective one thing that uh, the, the photography cinematography of this film really reminded me of was Jodorowsky's El Topo. Okay. Because the way that he he was able to frame these giant landscapes, like they're almost like psychedelic colors, you know, and that's all natural. There's nothing like nothing tempered with, you know, it was just uh, the time of day or the way that you're able to, to the angles and the way you're able to frame things. I mean, I, I just really thought that the work that Hall did was really, you know, reminiscent. It took me back to, like I was saying, what I saw in El Topo it was that kind of that psychedelic 70s, uh, just the whole desert trippiness. I'd completely agree with that. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good call. I can see that, yeah. I have it. I have it. I have it. After some time to abuse a fellow. But Cassio is just a little bit too familiar with his wife. So let's talk a bit about the film's merits and otherwise, because I, I think you already mentioned, Robert, that the critics were less than kind and the public also, you know, one week in three New York cinemas and one week in a drive-in in the middle of nowhere. And wasn't there a story about only six people were left at the end of the movie and they were all too busy necking? And I think that was at the, pre yeah, when he tells about the premiere. I mean, I mean, it seems nobody saw, when this was released, like no one saw it and the few who did just kind of crapped all over it. Right. I guess in terms of like success of a film, unless the people were behind it, it's like the success is like due to like how much money that it made. And it seems like it didn't make any money. So it, so people kind of conveniently forgot about it. But then now kind of rediscovering, you can kind of say it's not the disaster that people have made it out to be. I mean, it's not a classic film, but it is a good film. Like I said, it came out the end at that time of Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, the movie adaptations. And I know maybe it just came out too late. If it had come out maybe before any of those films, I think maybe it would have been, I guess, accepted differently. I guess it would have, it would have had to have come out sometime as you said, before Christ Superstar and Tommy, not so much because people were getting tired of, you know, religious rock operas, but also because of the visual expectation that people had from films like that. I mean, you know, Tommy was mm -hmm. made by Ken Russell, for crying out loud. <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, there's always something happening. I guess probably one thing I, I was going to sort of bring up is that, like, the first 30 or 40 minutes which are set around the wedding night of Othello and Desdemona. There's all these songs. and it's, The first 30, 40 minutes is a case it can be argued that it's a rock opera. And mm -hmm. the rest of the film, I mean, there are still songs, but it's more dialogue-driven, and it's more about Iago's plan Oops. and put, putting in, yeah, in effect to put the wedge between Othello and Desdemona and, you know, use Michael Cassio as his pawn. They're almost like two different films. The first half is 
well, as close as this film gets to spectacle. And the second half is more plot-driven and I just sort of wonder whether... The film can't quite work out what sort of film it's trying to be. And I think that's probably its main fault. But on the other hand, not enough people saw the film to be able to sort of come to that determination. So I'm wondering, like three, four years ago, when people actually finally got to see it for the first time, or you know, however many years ago when the film prints were discovered, why people, you know, why the film scholars were all of a sudden more kind to it. You had your film critics like Vincent Canby back in 74 who said this is the biggest chunk of shit out. This is quite obviously not the case. It is a flawed film, but it still has its merits. But what's the difference between a 1974 film critic and a film critic in you know the 2000s? It's not a traditional musical in any means, and I think maybe because of the... God, 40 years, 40, 45 somewhat years between that, maybe... Uh, they're more accepting of non-traditional musicals. That mm-hmm. might that might be a little of it. The music still holds up. Oh, uh, the music's fantastic. It's oh, wonderful. Yeah. But I mean, you look at something like, for example, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? When that when that came out at the time, it was an incredible bomb, and and people really didn't think that much of of Rocky when it came out. I mean, it, it came out to almost like no acclaim. The film. And then, you know, so many years later, it gained its legendary status. And that was when people examining things when you're you're too close to them and, and you, know, you need the years or the time to really ruminate over, I don't, I don't know, or is it maybe just different generations the need to look at things? It's, it's an interesting question. You know, Tim, I was actually sort of thinking all along that another film, you know, not story-wise, but in terms of really putting something out there that was a lot different it was another film that we've discussed on the show and that's phantom of the paradise absolutely that was i was just about to say that's another one that was really trashed initially when it came out and De palma wasn't given any real uh, credit for that and then years later you know now generations afterwards people are just saying you know it's it's a cult masterpiece so you know and i mean here's the thing too right that's interesting now like i was just thinking about today while watching this is that you know in the 70s people were really allowed to fly their freak flag or just try something different i mean the 70s were it was a whole era of experimentation, and I, and I mean like cinematic experimentation, where today it would just be like, well, how much is it going to cost? Well, screw your dream. It's too expensive. <laughs> like, But back in the day, it was like in the 70s, you know, where people were able to get up enough money to try to do something different or, or you know, or, or in a lot of ways, you know, they wanted to try to, uh, you know, meet that hip counterculture at the time. And they, you know, and they thought they would be embraced by the hippie era, you know, and, and or else, you know, people that were more into experimental art. I couldn't see somebody, you know, like even that uh, who was it, Michael Fassbender, the just Macbeth, right? Yes, that's right. Yep. Okay, I couldn't see, you know, like some anybody doing a musical version of Macbeth, like a theatrical version of Macbeth today, or or even any Shakespearean um, thing. It just wouldn't fly. I think the last thing that they successfully tried to do like that was that film with Leonardo DiCaprio and oh, what the, I forget the girl's name, the uh, Romeo and Juliet. You, you know the yeah, one, the yeah, Bosman Yeah, 
Baz right, Luhrmann, that was yeah. yeah the Baz Luhrmann one. That was the last thing I can remember that was really significantly done that really kind of you know touched on Shakespeare like that. But anything beyond that, I just no, I, I can't see that being done today. I don't know if you're ever a fan of uh, the TV show Moonlighting. I, I certainly was with Sybil uh, Shepherd and Bruce Willis. But there was a fantastic episode where there's a young boy who's watching television, and you know, in a very meta moment, he's watching Moonlighting, and his mother says, "Oh, you know, you have a Shakespeare test tomorrow." turn off moonlighting you know go off go up to your room and study so he goes up to his room and he's studying the taming of the shrew but he's imagining the Sybil Shepherd character and the Bruce Willis character in the title roles and that ends up being sort of like a Motown musical so a Motown adaptation of uh, the taming of the shrew and that was done very very well but because it was just an episode of a TV show unless you're a fan of the show it's probably not known in uh, uh, wider Shakespearean circles Atomic Shakespeare that was the name of the episode was it? yeah I would say if anyone well one interesting thing is that like it also has like how shakespeare sort of adapted for for its time because you had all night long which is sort of in the jazz beatnik area and then catch my soul which is kind of like country folk i guess if anybody was going to tackle it now it would be it would be done in hip-hop right right Oh, oh yeah absolutely absolutely but then there was the other one that really didn't even, I just thought of, uh, that didn't even have anything to do with music, but it was the Gus Van Zandt film with Keanu Reeves and... Uh, oh, My Own Private Idaho, yeah. Right, and that was all based on Shakespeare as well. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Pastor, what do you say, Yas? Did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did. From first to last, why do you ask? I did not think he'd been acquainted with her. Oh, yes. Indeed. Indeed? Indeed? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord. Honest. My lord, for all I know. What do you think? Think, my lord? Think, my lord? You know, you do mean something. I heard you say, but now you like not that when Cassio left my wife. What was it you did not like? Michael Cassio. I think he's honest. I think so, too. Well, men should be what they seem. Men should be what they seem. I wanted to talk about some of the uh, the actors because, I mean, really, this film, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of thematics and, and visuals and all that, but really, this is very much an actor's film, even though some of them are, well, you know, Tony Joe White and Richie Havens weren't real actors. Certainly, in, in Tony Joe White's case, I think he went and said when Jack Wood approached him for being in the film, he said, well, I'm not an actor. I don't know the first thing about it. And he said, you don't have to be. Just be Tony Joe be White. Be, be, yeah. you, be, that, be that guy from Louisiana, you know, who's sing poke salad down here if you want. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, uh, but for, you know, I think really for non-actors like Tony Joe and, and Richie Havens, they do have a lot of appeal. And I think like in that moment after where he's woken up the day after the church has burnt down and the disaster of the night before with the wedding party, he looks incredibly vulnerable. My heart went out to him. You know, he, he gets up. Reputation, reputation, reputation. But he said, oh, reputation, reputation, reputation. <laughs> and your heart does go out to him. And he, he's not acting, but there's still something so charismatic about him. That he, I think he does such a great job. Where do you guys see him? I mean, he's wonderful for not, again, for not being a uh, trained actor. I mean, he, I thought he did his role perfectly. Uh, Havens, I, I think as it starts, you can kind of see he's a little, he starts out a little stiff, but then as the movie progresses, 
he gets better and like because by the end i mean he's very believable well he's got more uh, he's got more to work with as the film yeah. goes on he gets more and more jealous and psychotic the big surprise for me uh was lance Legault because i knew who he was but i'm familiar with him uh in the 80s he showed up he was like a guest on shows like my magnum pi the a-team and right. he would be playing like all these military authoritarian figures so to see him in something like this, where it's like 180 degrees, and he's great. If things maybe had worked out, if maybe the reception to the film had been a little better, it might have kind of, it may have opened a little bit more for him. I'd love to have seen him in other musical roles. There's a case that the film could have been uh, called Iago Satan Superstar because it really, <laughs> it it really is his story. It's all told from his perspective, and Othello and Michael Cassio and Desdemona are almost side characters. It's his mm-hmm. tale, I think. The Sanfe Satan title, I think, actually kind of fits it better because he's. I mean, it is right. Iago's. I don't know. Like you, you were you were talking about you know uh, Jack's change in his mind about after the whole Manson family thing. And it really makes you wonder whether or not he really told him to play it like Manson, to play the Iago role like just like Manson. Because it's so, you know, it's so obvious to me. There was parts where, you know, when Richie Havens is playing and guitar by the flyer and you see all these just like disheveled guys with beards and all these like mobs and mobs and mobs of like long-haired girls and these thin reedy guys and I'm just like, Holy shit, man, this is like 1969 all over again. You know, it's really, it, it's really, really, you know, prevalent, obviously. I mean, it's just really overly prevalent. And when you're talking about roles in the film, there's one person that we haven't brought up yet that I really believe that we need to talk about. And that's one Mrs. Sue Tyrell. Yes, thank you. Oh, jeez. I mean, I don't know about you. Does she, does she tickle your you, fancy, Tim? Well, <laughs> let's put let's put it this way. I mean, I don't know. You, this might sound like an insane question, okay? But have you guys ever really looked at a certain person, like a like a either like a TV character or or an actor, or actress, or a person, and really think that they personified a specific animal? I can't you know, say like okay, okay, yeah. Well, what I'm trying to say is that every time I've seen Susan Terrell in any film, she's always, always, absolutely, 100% reminded me of a snake. <laughs> she's she's just got this thing about her where she, it's like the way she talks and the way she kind of holds herself. And it's almost like she's like that in the Jungle Book. Trust in me. <laughs> you know? Like, you know what I mean? Like, she's got that thing about her. And in every film that I've ever seen, her in she's just got that kind of that reptilian seductiveness where she just you get close enough to her and she's just gonna wrap right around you and put you to sleep and then it's all over you know what i mean and she totally does that in this film she does that big time i, I certainly have to question though you know there's that moment where she goes and shows iago i've stolen the handkerchief i've stolen the bit of evidence that you're going to use to frame michael cassio in othello's eyes and she's basically trying to get some action from Iago, and he's not giving it to her. What the hell is wrong with Satan? What the hell is wrong with that guy? Because, you know, she says, oh, you've got to, to get your man, you have to tickle his fancy. Tickle his fancy. Don't you worry about your method or your style. Tickle his fancy. And he will come around every time. 
what the hell? Why couldn't she tickle his fancy? Right. I, I was I was actually going to make a point about Susan Tyrell is that even though this is sort of an updated adaptation of a Shakespearean text, which sort of means that you can do whatever you want with the role. If it's going to be modern, you make it modern. But did you guys sort of feel that Susan Tyrell's acting, certainly in the in the latter stages where she's telling a fellow what a fool he was for believing the lies that uh, Iago had gone and thrown on him and cast aspersions on his own wife, I felt her acting was the most Shakespearean. She'd stuck with the Shakespearean approach. It's just the impression I get. Nay, his pernicious soul right half a grain a day. He told a lie. An odious damned lie. A wicked, wicked lie. No. He fought with Cassio. No. She was too fond of her filthy bargain. Did that sort of go in your minds either, or? It was funny because, you know, I'm not saying that all of uh, Shakespeare is full-on frothing and, you know, like, overblown. But I found that through the majority of the film, everybody seemed to be laid back. You know, everybody really seemed to be taking it at their own pace. And, you know, everything seemed to be very kind of matter of fact. But whereas at the end, like you're saying, when she's on Othello's back, like, yeah, you fucking do, you And she's just, that's when it really sticks out like a sore thumb because the rest of the film, like I'm saying, is kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, he's a preacher, man. Yeah. Hey, like everything, every, everything's so low key. Whereas when when she really pours it on, that's what a lot of times you see in Shakespearean theater is when they have those moments where people are distraught or they really want to enunciate or they really pour it on to let you know, like you know, this is can't you see you fool? Like don't you know what's going on? You know. But they're building up to this point. I mean, look, I, I was going to say that this story requires a lot of tension, and to be absolutely honest with you, I think there was. So much of the laid-back stuff, they struggle to build up the tension. So, right. effectively, gone through all this, you know, laid-back. Hey, yeah, man, you know, your uh, your old lady, she's hanging out a bit with Michael Cassio. To oh, you horrible yeah. wench, uh, you yeah. faithful yeah. snake, and and, and right. Susan Tyrell is Amelia saying. Uh, oh, you fool that you would believe my wicked, wicked husband. It, it's sort of like they've gone. I, I think, as you've said on more than one occasion, Timia, yeah, there was, we, we got to the taste of the steak, but without the sizzle. Right. There was none of the, yeah. was none of the build-up that was really required. And I okay. think right. that's, for me, what the big fault of the film is. I mean, I, I, really, the film is not the disaster that it was made at all those years oh, ago. No. And actually, I, I would truly say, if it, we're going to come down to this soon. Yes, I like it, and yes, I would recommend it. But it's but that is certainly a big shortcoming of the film is the tension. I don't know if it's because of the acting. I don't know if it's because of the pacing. Uh, maybe another viewing will reveal it to me. But I think that was its major fault. But where it had to explode at the end, well, it did, and uh, you know, that was sure. at least to its credit. The one thing I want to add with about Susan Terrell before we move on is that I guess for most of the film, you're not really sure about where her sympathies lie until like towards the end and she kind of goes over. And I will say that in terms of the performance, it's well, I, I think she's pretty much the most accomplished actress who's in the cast. And compared to her other roles that she's more known for, it's certainly one of the most restrained performances that she's done. Oh, yeah. She gives it to Cassio. No, I... Found it and I gave it to my husband. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Robert, about, you know, this being one of uh, Susan Terrell's more sedate performances. Because, I mean, if you'd seen her in um, Forbidden Zone or Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, or there was that Bukowski adaptation as well. And she really she really dials it back on this one for sure. Holy moly. <laughs> Uh, so I think probably one more actor that we need to mention is that Susan Hoobly in her role as Desdemona. I mean, where do you guys see... Oh, actually, we haven't spoken about Richie Havens properly either, but it's Susan Hoobly. What, what did you think of her as uh, Desdemona? <laughs> she's, well... I mean, she's okay, but I don't. I know she, it was like one of one of her early roles, but she doesn't really register all that much. She's she's kind of there, but she's almost like, at least to me, almost like a background character. She's um, sure, but I I don't know if that's entirely her fault or just sort of or the nature of the role too. Because she, I mean, she's just sort of like essentially she's like the girl. If this was like a regular plot, she's just like the girl. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I tended to agree with you. I think she was, I don't know, maybe ineffectual is probably too strong a word, but she did, I think, have limited, she had limited resources to work with. I mean, when you had characters as strong as all the others, and she was just right. quite required to be there to be the object of Othello's affection and the object of his jealousy. And, you know, she would protest, oh, Othello, why why would you doubt me? Right. You? She didn't really do terribly much with the role, but I don't know, no. as you say, Robert, whether but, that was due to the way it was it was underwritten for her or because of uh, right. Patrick McGoon's direction or just she was limited. Well, what you were talking about earlier about the tension and then the build-up and then the payoff and how, you know, it really didn't come together, it really wasn't that effective. Effective. Well, this this is clearly evident in in the performance of season hopefully too. I think because you know when you you see her kind of almost like a mouse, and when it really time for her to proclaim her innocence, she's just like like you know, no pray, I didn't do it. I didn't. Honest, no, I didn't. You know, like it's just kind of like. It's not very convincing. It, you know, with the original Othello, I mean, Desdemona is like, I swear to God, it's like, no, no, I would never, you know, and, and with this is kind of like, no, I didn't do that. No, no, no. You know, like, it just it just seems like it's it's not, it's, she wasn't really effective. As, I mean, she, she really didn't put it out there. You know? She had that pixie haircut and looked very much like Mia Farrow. I wonder how Mia Farrow herself would have done in the role. Hmm. I was going to say that in the beginning, you know, you said that uh, she looked a bit like Mia Farrow, but also, was it just me or did uh, she really remind you of a nun in the beginning? Yeah, I guess. Like, yeah. She really, she really reminded me of a nun. Like, I mean, and Richie Havens as, you know, like the priest, you know, like there was that kind of like, because she had, she had that, the, the uh, almost like she was wearing a habit in the beginning. Oh, for you the know, wedding, like, the wedding sequence. Yes, right, right, right. But it was like, it, but it just reminded me, like, she looks so much like, just like a nun. Like, she just looked like asexual. Oh, like yeah. she just she, she just got yeah but she just totally looked like a nun to me and it was just interesting how Desdemona had been portrayed in different versions of Othello and to me in this one it almost looked like a priest and then together and that's kind of <laughs> yeah that is interesting because for all the talk I mean when you seeing them together it is it is sort of an asexual pairing you don't really get the sense of heat. No, no, and no. I guess at the, all. that I guess would that normal that I guess in past uh, iterations of Othello you would probably get from the pairing. It's, 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 I'd, be right. I'd be interested to know, given uh, you know Jack Good's alleged editing of the film to bring it 
in, more into line with his newfound born-again religious beliefs, whether there had been maybe some sort of sexual heat in the original. Uh, right. Patrick McGowan uh, approved cut of the right. film and he dialed right. that back just so it wouldn't offend his well, newfound religious sensibilities. The, the last thing I want to say about this before we wrap up is that, you know, when you're touching on uh, Jack Good's, like, his religious beliefs, the one thing that I find interesting in, in this adaptation of Othello is that in the Shakespeare tale, Othello was a military man. So you know that in the beginning, he has the potential for violence. Right. He has the, he has the potential to kill. But in this, it's like Richie Havens is, is supposed to be like the lamb. You know, he's supposed to be the man of peace. You know, and you really don't think that he has that potential to do that, right? So, I mean, it's kind of weird in a way. I mean, I, you know, I can see it. Yeah, you could say, yeah, an army guy could kill. And it's also ironic when a priest winds up killing somebody too. Sure. But I just thought it was kind of weird how, you know, with the original story that you know that, you know, Othello has that in him already there. Whereas, you know, with uh, Havens as the priest, it's just this, you know, like, oh, hey, brother. You know, like he's just got that whole, hmm. Okay, where's this coming from? You know, like, you know. I'm not a theological expert, but it seems that, well, a few weeks ago, I went and watched Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. And that was all about you know, Willem Dafoe as Jesus trying to fight his deity side versus his human side. And the character of Othello here as the priest, yes, he's trying, he's working hard to be, you know, this man of God. And yet there's his all too real, very human side, which he's, he's fighting. And then that comes to the surface and that involves jealousy and ease, being easily led by an evil man such as Iago or Satan as it is and you know, we all often hear about you know religious figures saying I have to fight to uh, resist Satan they never say it's an easy thing and that's and ostensibly Othello failed so that's sure. in, in that regard it's it's quite believable but once again, sure, sure. it comes to the fact that they didn't ratchet up the tension like we you know what we saw in All Night Long or indeed in Shakespeare's original version of Othello right Castillo I love you but never more shall thou serve me. All right, so final thoughts. Um, Robert, your, your your final thing, would you recommend this to um, the, the casual film go or, or people who like musicals? Or, or what, what would you say to someone who came to you and said, look, I've heard of this film. Should I watch it? What are your thoughts? I would recommend the film, I guess, to the casual viewer. I, I think anybody, I think any big music fan, definitely, uh, they would know of Tony Joe White and, Richie Havens, but yeah, I mean, it, like like we've said earlier, it, it is a flawed film. Uh, but what film? What film isn't flawed? It's nowhere near the disaster it's been it's been portrayed as. And I think there's enough interesting variation in the in the tale, I guess, to, to make it worthwhile viewing. Absolutely, Tim. Your final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is you know, this is a film that. I was really wasn't going in expecting a heck of a lot to tell you the truth. Again, like we said earlier, there had been, you know, the whole 70s religious musical revival, like that whole, you know, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. And I, you know, I just thought, okay, this is going to be some singing and dancing in the desert. And it turned out. <laughs> 
it, it, it turned out to be something that was very different from that. And I and I really thought that I was really quite impressed, actually, not as much by uh, Susan Terrell, but I mean, but the other characters as well, because there was, like you said, Tony Joe White didn't have an acting background. And it was the first time that I'd seen, uh, what was his name, Legault? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Legault, you know, as the first time I'd seen him. And I'd really thought, man, this guy had a pretty slippery heel. I mean, I, I thought he was he was casted perfectly. And uh, anyway, I would highly recommend that people looking for some uh, alternative 70s cinema. There's a lot of people out there that think they've seen it all. But uh, I would actually really pair this up with, uh, there's a, a film that's really cool that a lot of people haven't seen from the 70s called Zachariah. That's uh, ah, kind of a... A psychedelic, yeah, electric western, kind of a psychedelic, trippy western. I would highly uh, put this on a double bill with Zachariah as something that uh, a lot of people haven't seen, but it's worth checking out. I haven't even heard of that one. Wow, I'll uh, I'll, uh, do some searching. Yeah, look, once again, as I said earlier, Ron, this is a film that I'm not going to build up to the skies, but certainly I'm so glad I bought it. I'm so glad that we're discussing it. And yeah, it, it does have some strong flaws, but it also has some really terrific strengths. I, I've read some you know, reviews where people say, yeah, just ignore the film, go get the soundtrack. And whilst I would say the soundtrack is probably its greatest strength, really there is plenty of merit in watching this film. And you know, I think we've sort of pretty much adequately covered what it was that we liked about the film. And, you know, it's, it is a visual feast. And you're really, at its core, it is the story of Othello, you know, regardless whether it's told in the greatest way that's ever been done on film is, you know, another matter, but it is the story of Othello. And if you're a Shakespearean fan, you should probably check it out. And if you're a fan, as you've said, Tim, of uh, 70s alternative cinema, if you're a fan of these great stories, the story of the lost film and how it was found. You, really, you owe it to yourself to check this out. So yeah, I'd, I'd give this, I'd give this a thumbs up, absolutely. And you know, full credit goes to Etiquette Pictures for really digging this up and putting this out. I mean, I think one of you said, yeah, this came out via Vinegar Syndrome, and I think Etiquette Pictures is there more inverted commas respectable arm or something like that but if you go to the vinegar syndrome website you should be able to order it from there and i highly recommend that you do and really full kudos to them for making this film uh, available to the general public because you know you're not going to be able to get this in well in in australia we have jb hi-fi and you know whatever your local i think best buy you're not going to get it there but you say you have to do a little bit of searching online but um definitely it is well worth your while so anyway there's our discussion of catch my soul from 1974 so tim i already know what your selection is for next month so but reveal it to uh, our audience and to bernie who's listening well summer is upon us so i thought that you know in uh, appropriate hot sweaty fashion i figured that uh we go with a class, something that uh, I've been dying to talk about with you guys for a long time, and that is classic midnight movie, uh, The Harder They Come. I'm going to have to start singing uh, a little Jimmy Cliff here, I think, probably on the, on oh, the outro. Nice. Yeah, this is a film that I've loved for years and years, and I mean, we'll get into it uh, next month, but I tell you, I, I, I put this uh, soundtrack uh, head and shoulders above anything else out there. 
I'd say next to the Woodstock soundtrack, but uh, I'd put the, the Harder They Come soundtrack right up at the top. Wow, that's a that's a big call. But there are some great songs on that soundtrack for sure. So, uh, all of them, all of them. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I confess. I mean, I know the music, but I have not seen the film. There's so many Pantheon films I have not seen, but I'm immensely looking forward to that. And I should say that we do have another special guest next month. I've uh, invited Terry Frost of Paleo Cinema. I remember hearing him talk about the film last year. Every week he does a half-hour presentation on ABC Radio Darwin. Uh, you can listen to it on the net. Uh, just look up abc.net.au, ABC Radio, uh, look for local radio Darwin, and I think 9 o'clock local time, Terry speaks with whichever presenter. I know that there's about two or three different presenters who host the shows on um, Thursday nights, and uh, sometime right. last year he spoke with a lady called Liz Travaskis about The Harder They Come, spoke very eloquently, so I thought, well, uh, I've always wanted to have Terry come and join us, and this just seemed the logical film to uh, bring him around. He's uh, got a lot uh, of interesting stuff to say, so um, looking forward to having him join us. So, uh, Absolutely. Uh, a great call. And um, once again, Robert, thank you so much for uh, yes. your, your debut. Hopefully it's not your last. Hopefully we'll have you back for another Oh, Absolutely. Night. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed my time. I hope to talk with you guys again, and so hopefully with with all three of you. With yes, yes, absolutely, yeah, and absolutely. Like we really appreciated uh, your suggestion of this film, Robert, and thank you so much for your insight and all the uh, information that you provided this on this film because this one was a really kind of an obscure nugget that uh, was really kind of buried back in the stacks and, and you really uh, helped us flesh this out. So for that, we are so grateful. For sure. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's the end of this episode. And so we'll be back in July. We're in June, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. yeah. We'll be back in July for episode 30 of See Here Podcast. So until then, please watch wonderful movies, listen to some great music, listen to some great soundtracks. And some... let the devil catch you, so... <laughs> oh, yes, go go and uh, uh, work, go work on a building. And uh, That's right. Until next month. Uh, we'll, Thank you. We'll catch you then. Okay, cheers. 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 I have a feeling I love her too You know I do not out of lust, but cause I must, or I suspect the lusty more. Between my sheets has done my office more than once before. <laughs>